You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. All right, so maybe you've seen the movie Man in Red Banana. Uh, banana. Man in, Med, Man in Red Bandana. Have you seen it? Anybody seen it? Man in Red Bandana. Let me tell you about it. Wells Crowther was an equities trader and a volunteer firefighter who worked at the World Trade Center and when the building collapsed on 9-11. Crowther was actually in a position to get out, and he did, and he called his mom as soon as he got out and told her he was okay, but then he realized there were a whole lot of other people stuck in that building who could not get out, and he knew where there was an, un, you know, an unmarked stairwell, so he ran up 78 flights of stairs to get to the, to the sky lobby at the World Trade Center, and he found people there. They'd gotten down some floors, but they didn't know how to get out, and he called to them and said, uh, showed them you know, how to get out. He, he, he wrapped a red bandana around his face to keep out um, debris and smoke. He always kept a red bandana with him. His dad had given him one when he was a child, gave him two, actually. This is him when he was eight years old. Gave him a red bandana and a white handkerchief. Uh, the white, white is for show, red is for blow. That was his dad's thing. So he wrapped it around his face and he ran up all those flights. And um, when he found the, f- found the people, he, he brought them down. Somebody who was there later described this, this man who just showed up out of nowhere, who was calm and strong and confident and who told them to follow him. And he led them down the stairwell that was... Um, while, while he carried a, a wounded woman on his back. When he got them to the place where he thought they could make it the rest of the way, he handed her off, they went on down, and he went back up that, those flights of stairs two more times to bring two more groups of people down. His mother never heard from him again. She assumed he was dead, but she was just wanted to know what happened. And so every day she would scour the New York Times. They ran daily stories of survival and other people's, you know, experiences, and she would scour the New York Times for, for her son, for any indication of where, what might have happened to him. It took six months before they could positively identify his body. Two months after that, she found this article written by someone who said they had been rescued by a mysterious man who managed to locate the only passable stairwell. The article mentioned that the man wore a red bandana over his face. And when his mother read that, she said, there you are. So Wells Crowther died helping other people live. It's the kind of decision he could make in a moment because that's already who he was. He was a volunteer firefighter for the New York Fire Department. People put their, uh, put their lives on the line all the time for their country. People put their lives on the line for, um, for, for noble and, and not so noble values. For the thrill of danger, people put their lives on the line sometimes. So I wonder, what would you die for? What would you die for? Would you die for total strangers? Would you risk your life for people you don't even know? We want to think we'd die for our children, that we'd run back into a burning building for our loved ones. We want to think we'd do that, but you don't know. You don't know until you get there what you're actually capable of. 
Would I die for my family? Would I, would, I, would I spend my life for a stranger? Would I die for my faith? I mean, my values. Would I die for my values? Paul Tillich is the one who first coined this phrase, ultimate concern, and that was his question. It was his way of kind of phrasing what I've just been asking you. What is your ultimate concern? What would you die for? What is your ultimate concern? And he coined it as a way of, of actually thinking about idols, our idols. He says every human has an ultimate concern. Maybe it's an idea or some version of what we think success looks like, or maybe it, it's our country that we ultimately value, or it's a vision of the good life. We might not voice it as our ultimate concern, but we say in the way we live our lives, this is what really matters to me. So we will live like this thing we value is what matters most. Until it says this, that faith is the state of being ultimately concerned. You should write both of these things at the top of your page, especially if you're a, if you're a journaler, write it there. If, you're, if you've got your Bible out, the best way to engage your message is with the Bible, something to write with, something to write on. And, and um, at, at Daniel chapter 3, you might just write that. What is my ultimate concern? What is my ultimate concern? In other words, what do I have faith in? <laughs> this, what, Paul, what Paul Tillich means is that this is what it means to have faith. It means that this thing, whatever this is, is what I use to treasure everything else by. It's my bottom line for decisions. It's my bottom line for risk. Because here's the thing, putting faith in your ultimate concern is a risky thing. You can end up putting faith in an... In well, we'll find out in Daniel chapter 3 in a 90-foot golden pole, which will eventually crumble. And if it tr proves to be a failure, Tillich says the meaning of your life will crumble with it. So putting your all, all your eggs in the basket of your ultimate concern, that's risky. Tillich says the only thing that can be our ultimate concern is God. The question is, is it God with a capital G or God with a little g? Which God? And so this is the question of Daniel chapter 3. What is your ultimate concern? Because our ultimate concern becomes our God, and my goodness, how easy it is to dilute our sold-out commitment to the only true God in favor of what actually matters to us. So here's the short end of Daniel's story. After Israel was conquered by Babylon, the king of Babylon requested that some of the, the healthier Israelite men come and serve to the, the palace. They would become slaves to the king. And the first half of Daniel, the first six chapters, are about what happened to them while they were trying to live faithful lives in a pagan culture, serving a pagan king. So... The first six chapters of Daniel are really six different stories of how these men chose to live their lives and how they trusted in God to provide for them. These are the classic stories of vacation Bible school and veggie tales. It's Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego getting thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and then there are some stories about Daniel interpreting dreams for a very moody and egotistical pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar who you recognize, I'm sure. All these stories are, are stories of God's providence in unlikely circumstances, examples of, of the eternal struggle between good and evil, between faith and ego, stories that challenge the reader to think about what really matters. The second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, are these visions that Daniel had. 
life after exile, maybe even life after life. We read about Daniel getting these prophetic visions from God, and you kind of get it that the reason Daniel is so good at interpreting these visions is because Daniel has gotten good at hearing the voice of God. So we, we, we begin to see from his example what it's like to know the character of God, to understand the kingdom of God, and, and, and to rest in the voice of God. So these two halves of one book, chapters, the stories in chapters one through six and the visions in chapters seven through 12, they're like two different books, but they're held together by one overarching theme, a theme most scholars agree on. The whole book of Daniel is about God's providence. Who God, God who longs to be our ultimate concern. This God who provides his sovereignty, his power, his supremacy. And so here's the, here's the word. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Trimper Longman puts it just that way, interprets all of Daniel, Daniel through this line. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. It's not the way we think, like that we have to passively sit by while God, the, the unmoved mover, the, watch, the, the cosmic clock winder, does his thing. It's not that. It's more of a sense of this God is able. Our God is able. He, he and, and, and ours is to decide how we receive that truth. Will we live lives as people who actually believe in a God who is not just able, but willing to see us through our worst times? Are we willing to serve, worship, and follow him even when we don't know how it will all turn out? That's the story of Daniel chapter one, a story that has probably got, sorry, Daniel chapter three, a story that's probably gotten more felt board time than any story in the Bible. So let's look at it together. We're just gonna look at verse one first. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel 3.1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. That's 90 feet high by nine feet wide. 90 feet is the distance from home plate to first base, which doesn't seem like much on a television screen, but you try running it. 90 feet high is four times, more than four times the height of the ceiling. And then nine feet wide, which makes it a very weird thing. It's like a big golden pole. 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That's a bizarre statue. We're never told what it is or why this particular shape. We just are told that um, that Nebuchadnezzar wanted people to bow to it. It was sort of a reverse musical chairs thing. When you heard the music, you had to fall down and worship this big chunk of gold no matter where you were, which seems ridiculous. And if someone told us to do that, we know we wouldn't. But what if they threaten us? What if they say, well, I'll, I will throw you in a fire if you don't do this? Is your family worth that risk? Is your salary worth that risk? Your way of life? So maybe you do it just to stay beneath the radar and keep your life. I mean, it's just one more bizarre thing being asked of us by a man who is clearly power hungry and frankly, a little bit insane. Do we put our lives on the line for a crazy man? I don't think so. And of course, that would be a reasonable response for a bunch of pagan people whose whole worldview was primarily do what the king says or else. 
For them, the ultimate concern was their way of life, which they protected by doing whatever the king told them to do. But it doesn't, what about the, what about the Israelites among them? What about these men who'd shown up in, in his palace? Now, it doesn't take a threat, even for most of us, to give our ultimate concern to something less than God. John Calvin, yes, I am quoting John Calvin, <laughs> said our minds are idle factories. We are no different than the people who look at that golden image and hear the music and say to ourselves, ah, you know, taking a stand here is not worth my comfort, my convenience, my family, my, my safety, my status quo. And so we, we, give it, we give in. We find ourselves full of idols. We, we are idol factories. In Neil Anderson's book, Freedom to, in Christ, he says this, who or what is most important to us becomes that which we worship. Our thoughts, love, devotion, trust, adoration, and obedience are directed to this object or person above all others. The thing doesn't have to be evil to be an idol. It's only a problem if it becomes more important to your life than God himself. It's only a problem if it becomes your ultimate concern. So what is your ultimate concern? What gets your mental time? What takes top spot on your list of priorities and how does that affect your relationship with God? If you don't know the answer to that, then I just I would encourage you, spend some time this week, make a list of all the things in your life. Just make a list and then begin to prioritize that list. Think about, get honest about the time and attention that each one of those things gets. Think widely, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. If I'm willing to confess that my life is out of whack in some area or that I've made an ultimate concern of something that is not the one true God, well, now I might actually be able to make progress in dismantling my idols. So go back to Daniel's story, Daniel chapter 3. When the, it's actually the story of this one of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the music played, we're told that all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They did it not because they loved the image, but because the king had given them this ultimatum, either bow down and worship or be tossed into a blazing furnace. So everyone fell down and worshiped, everyone except those few guys. Those, those were their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they had a life and a faith before the king. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah had a faith. And when people noticed that these foreign slaves weren't doing what they'd been commanded to do, they told the king, these guys aren't doing what you asked. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. And that infuriated the king, and so he called them in. I don't know why he didn't just smoke them right then, but he didn't. He gave them one more chance. He said, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, this is Daniel 3.15, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able, he is able to deliver us from it. And he will 
deliver us from your majesty's hand. And then verse 18, I want you to underline the first few words here. But even if he does not. Because that's where my whole head has been all week long. But even if he does not. What am I going to do? When it doesn't turn out the way I thought it ought to turn out. What am I going to do when my prayers don't get answered the way I think they should get answered? When God doesn't act the way I think God should act? But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's a lot of faith in that response. I mean, they already believe God will provide, God will deliver. They know that God is able, can even say he will save them. That's faith, but then they take it up a notch. <laughs> even if God does not deliver us, we still want you to know, we're not going to worship your image of gold. <laughs> I know the difference between God and an idol. Even if God does not, that is a sacred stand. That's deep in faith. I wonder if you've got something in your life that you can say that about or, or maybe need to say that about. Even if I don't get my dream job. Even if I don't get my dream life. Even if I don't get. God is still worth it. I'll still worship him because my faith doesn't ride on wish fulfillment. I have to detach from the outcome. In order for faith to be faith, I have to detach from the outcome. In order for hope to be real hope, I have to detach from the outcome, even if God does not. It's Habakkuk's prayer when he explores where God is in the midst of suffering. Even if the fields pr produce no food, I will find my joy in God my Savior. It's the faith of Job who could say to his friends, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Somewhere he got it. That hope is different for a person who has deep in faith. It detaches from the outcome. Oswald Chambers says this is probably the most profound statement of faith in the whole Bible. He says faith is by its very nature, or faith by its very nature must be tried. And the real trial of faith is not that we find it difficult to trust God, but that God's character has to be cleared in our own minds. Does that make sense? At some point, I've got to get to the place where I get it, that God is who God is, whatever my circumstances. He is still good. He is for us. He provides. He is able. His plan in any given set of circumstances is worth trusting. He is the one who is God Almighty, the most true being in the universe, more true, more real, more enduring than you or me. Yahweh, Jehovah, I am, the God of angel armies, Jehovah Sabaoth. That is our God. Chambers says, faith in the Bible is faith in God against everything that contradicts him. 
I will remain true to God's character, whatever he may do. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the faith we're after. That's what we're after. Even if God does not, that depth of faith. That's the depth of faith I want for you. That's what I so want to be able to describe for you, but I realized so quickly when I was, you know, you get down in this rabbit hole and you realize I can't even begin to describe for you what that faith is. So I'm going to give you four really practical ideas, but they are completely inadequate. You're welcome. (laughs) You have to find your way there. To the even if he does not faith, you have to find your way there. But if you're trying to jumpstart it, try this first. Choose faith, not as an emotional choice, but as a commitment. Look at your thing that is not what you expected. This is not in my plan, God. Look at it and choose faith. Choose it. Faith in the Bible is faith in God against everything that contradicts him. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, an active, living trust in and relationship with God, a kind of believing that results in action. It is a choice to believe against all, all um, outcomes. God, it's a choice to believe that God can be trusted. And it's not something we feel or most of the time even understand because it's not about feeling. It's a higher form of knowing. That's what faith is. It is a higher form of knowing, a spirit-level acknowledgement that there is a God in this world who is bigger than me and he is worth my worship. Second, learn to praise God. Because the scripture tells me he inhabits the praises of his people. For all his faults, Nebuchadnezzar got one thing right. He, he, had, he, had a, he had his musicians play music. And every time the people heard the music, they had to fall down and worship their, that 90-foot pole. It was sort of Pavlovian, training their brains how to respond. And so I would say to you, I would say to you, that learning to worship God using music and psalms and even a prayer language to worship the one true God will actually cultivate closeness. We don't praise as a response, first of all. We praise as an invocation. God inhabits the praises of his people. Three, become focused on spiritual disciplines. Because faith is not an emotional choice, it doesn't respond best to feelings but to discipline. Faith responds to discipline. You should write that down. Faith responds to discipline. So rather than complaining that you just live with a lot more doubt than faith, look at your disciplines. Ask yourself where you've lost the discipline and then go after it. Chambers says God's training ground with the ground, God's training ground where the missionary weapons are found is the hidden personal life of the saint. What is your hidden personal life like? And four, use your resources to serve others. Stretch your giving muscle. Chris told us last week that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they all, they all um, served. They served well in a really tough situation. They 
they were not the point of their being there. And when we're not the point of our own lives, when we activate that other-centered muscle, that other-centered, other-focused muscle, when we stretch that, we strengthen ourselves. So what happened to them? They were tossed into the furnace, hands and feet bound. The soldiers who tossed them in died because the fire was that hot. Nebuchadnezzar watched from a distance, and he found himself amazed by the moment. Look at the middle of verse 24. Weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? And they said, yes, your majesty. He said, well, then look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I'm just trying to figure out who that sounds like to me. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I bet he did say, You and me, God, right? You and me. You were who I built that golden thing for. You, God, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. So who was the other one in the fire? Was that the eternal Christ or an angel of the Lord? A lot of scholars would say that it is. But however we define that image, this is what we know. We know he was sent from God and he was a sign that God was in this. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Write that over whatever has you stirred up and anxious right now. Whatever fire you're standing in, whatever battle you're fighting. As Paul says, continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out, not in your circumstances, but in the gospel. So I'm going to tell you, real, do you have time for one more quick story? Last story, this is it. It's about a guy. I have to tell you, because you, know, you think, you read stories like this in the Bible, and you say, well, I don't know if that's really true or not. That sort of stuff doesn't really happen in real life, but it does all the time. People get martyred for the faith all the time. And in the early 1900s, Miguel Pro, Padre Miguel Pro, was a priest in the Catholic Church in Mexico. And he was appointed to serve a church in Mexico City three days after the government of Mexico had set, had, had set into law a very anti-clerical, anti-Catholic uh, kind of set of laws. C Catholic priests could no longer wear their clerical garb in public. They, they even forced some Catholic priests to marry. They wouldn't allow you to have worship outside of the building, and eventually they began to tear down Catholic churches. So it was a very dangerous time to express your faith. And yet, there was Catholic, I mean, there was Padre Pro, 
He, he had just been appointed to this church, and he began to serve. He would, he would go around in disguises sometimes, dressed like a beggar. He would beg the people on the street to get money for the people in his church because it was a terrible time financially. Tons of poor people. He conducted baptisms, and, and he gave mass, and he, um, all the things. Served communion, baptized children things that were explicitly prohibited and put him in danger of being killed. Every priest was hunted down, and eventually Padre Pro was hunted down also. He was arrested under false charges, never given his day in court. They sentenced him to die. So he went, uh, <coughs> you know, it, it, was, it was his turn at the firing squad, and on his way out, this guard was taking him to the firing squad, and the guard was sobbing and begging him to forgive him. And, and Padre Pro turned around and hugged the guy and said, oh, you're not only forgiven, but I just pray blessing over you. As a last request, when he got out there to the firing range, he asked if he could kneel in prayer, and they let him do it. And he had his crucifix in one hand and his prayer beads in the other hand, and he knelt there and he prayed to the God of his salvation. Even if he does not. And then he stood up, and he stood in front of that firing squad, and he said, may God have mercy on you. May God bless you. With all my heart, I forgive my enemies. And he stretched his hands out, just like Christ on the cross. And that picture, that picture is an actual photograph of the last moments of this man's life. And he put his arms out like this, and he cried, Viva Cristo Rey, which means, means long live Christ the King. Long live Christ the King. He chose to put himself in the image of the only one whose image is worthy of our worship. Paul writes, 1 Colossians 2.15, sorry, 1.15, Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul goes on, verse 21. Once you were alienated and were enemies in your minds, you're your idol factories. Because of your evil behavior, your ultimate concerns, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Long live Christ the King. You stand. Say that together. Long live Christ the King. Long live Christ the King.
God, I don't know what I will do when that time comes. But I know that today is part of that. Today is what gets me ready. Today is one of those moments when it's not hard. When the worst thing we have to deal with in this moment is a little extra humidity in the world. Lord, I I know that today is when I prepare for my moment when I stand, when I take that sacred stand. And so I am asking for myself and I'm asking for my friends, make us ready, God. Give us today a gift of faith. Give us today a heart to understand that our only hope is you as our ultimate concern that everything else has to pale in comparison. Lord, dismantle our idols. Release us from the tyranny of our own fallenness. God, for the one in the room right now whose life, whose whole life is hard and disappointed, they're just living, they're swimming in a sea of disappointment, the job hasn't come through, the finances haven't come through, the marriage isn't working, the relationships are, are chaotic. The schedule is over, overwhelming. I'm asking Jesus that in a way that only you can do it, will you detach us from the outcomes? So we can say to you, even if you don't do it the way we think you should do it, God of the universe, we will worship you. Even if it doesn't all work out exactly according to our plan, we trust yours. You are God to us and worthy. Worthy. We love you, Jesus. If today is your day, to accept Christ, to accept the truth that He is your ultimate concern, I want to talk with you either now or just after the service is over. Today is your, your day to commit to your faith or to commit again after a season away. I would like to talk with you. Just pray over you and encourage you. Make Jesus your ultimate concern. If you're ready to join the church, we want to talk to you so that you are surrounded by others who can make Jesus, who also make Jesus their ultimate concern. If there's something in your life that needs prayer, some idol that needs dismantling, we would love to pray with you and for you. I'm going to ask for Karen and Mark to come here to this side. I'll be over here. We would like to pray over you. If you want to come and just use this space as an altar, you're welcome to do that. Just come and kneel here and let God deal with you. You're invited to come. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.